2: Heads
1: down we we'll here on to sing this all
3: the way. Yeah. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth.
4: Hello, everybody.
3: And tonight, pinch hitting and asking on the email questions, we have Bridget.
4: Hi, Mr. Connors.
3: Okay, so, you know, this show, for those of you don't know about the show, it's about estate planning and elder law, the first part of the show. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, Nostalgia. And tonight, I'm very happy because we're going to be talking to one of my favorite directors, movie directors, Ron Maxwell. And of course, Beth, Ron Maxwell is the man who gave Patrick Falsey his first chance at acting.
4: (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed.
3: (laughs) Now, Ron Maxwell was the director of Gettysburg, which the 25th anniversary of the movie Gettysburg is coming up. And they're going to have an, an anniversary showing at the Majestic theater in Gettysburg. And I understand there are a lot of tickets left for the theater opening. There, There's also a dinner attached to it. The dinner may be sold out right now. But there are tickets for the Majestic. And they're going to have about 12 actors from the film and Ron Maxwell signing autographs and taking pictures with people after the show on October 13th in Gettysburg. So if you're a fan of the movie, there's still tickets available. So get to the Gettysburg Foundation, get to Gettysburg Movie Anniversary, and see, see what tickets are available. In any event, we'll Talk now a little bit more about estate planning and elder law. Each week, Kevin McCullough reads a question on his show where one of our listeners gets a chance to through Kevin to ask the question. And you can hear Kevin McCullough each Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer with Katsimatidis on Wednesdays. And Monday through Friday, if you listen on WMCA, he's on WMCA Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock. Kevin, take it away.
2: Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that uh, Mike Connors will answer one of your questions as it relates to estate law and elder care because at Connors & Sullivan, they are the number one law firm in the tri-state area when it comes to uh, those very topics, and uh, they've been so recognized by uh, the legal community in the state of New York, and we are glad to have uh, Mike with us. Mike, this week's question comes from a lady named Christina. She says, my mom has Parkinson's disease and needs assistance at home. She spent most of her money on her care but she still owns her house. Can I get her on Medicaid, Mike Connors?
3: Well, the answer is yes. First, we put the house in the trust. Then, assuming mom is under $15,000, we apply for Medicaid. If she's over $15,000, we put the excess money into a trust. If we did it during the month of September, mom could apply October 1st. If we did it during the month of October, mom could apply November 1st. There is no look-back period for home care Medicaid in New York State, which is for home equipment, supplies, and home attendance to help mom stay out of a nursing home and keep her at home.
2: That sounds like a really positive answer. And, friend, maybe you're one of those people that has a similar situation and you need to discuss what it would require to get your situation cared for. Why don't you call Connors & Sullivan? Here's their phone number, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. You can also send questions, Connors at com. Again, send your questions to Connors at com. And you can listen to the answer to other very important questions uh, every Saturday morning at 8 on AM 570, The Mission, and Saturday nights at 6 on AM 970,
3: The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. All right, now we have an email question coming in. Bridget, what's our email question of the week?
4: We have an email question from Jill from Queens, and she asks, am I responsible for my mother's credit card debt? My widowed mother, who is 78 years old, lives alone and watches the shopping shows on television all day long. She has racked up $21,000 in charges on her credit card. Am I responsible for paying back this debt when she dies?
3: Well, the answer is no. I mean, you're not responsible for a parent's bills. You're just not, unless you co-signed on the credit card, or which, again, Be very careful before you co-sign on anybody's loan or credit cards or whatever. But a child is not responsible for the bills of a parent. Now, here's the other side of the coin. If mom has a house or other substantial assets and it goes through probate, the credit card company or other creditors can put a claimant against the estate, and the claim cannot be settled until the executor goes to court and deals with the claim in court, and that gives the credit card company or other creditor the upper hand. Usually in our cases, what we're most afraid of are nursing home bills. So let's say for the sake of argument, you own a house, you go to a nursing home. The average cost of a nursing home right now in New York is about $15,000 a month. You go to a nursing home, you have a house, you're single. The deed to the house is in your name alone. You can't afford to pay that $15,000 a nursing home bill. Well, when you run out of money, Medicaid will pay that bill for you. But guess what? When you pass away, if the deed to the house is in your name alone when you die, Medicaid will put a lien on your house for the bill that they paid to the nursing home. And again, at the rate of $15,000 a month, you can easily run up your equity. The same principle applies to credit cards. You know, a a, a lot of times, and I'm not out to, to, to stiff credit card companies or anything, but at the same time, if you don't go through probate, credit card company has no place to put a claim. So in this case, you want to make sure mom avoids probate. She avoids probate when she passes away. There are no assets in her name alone when she passes away. That means if she has bank accounts, brokerage accounts, they're in trust for their joint, uh, somebody else's name is on the account. If you own a house, if she owns real estate, she owns a co-op. The best way to avoid probate is through a trust agreement. It's mom's house as long as she's alive. After after she's gone, it passes to the next generation free of taxes by free of taxes ordinarily under $5 million. Capital gains taxes are wiped out. There's no estate death tax in New York under $5 million. So it's very important to avoid probate, to avoid creditor's claims. Now, next up, we've got Ron Maxwell. We talk about two of Ron's films in in our interview, one Gettysburg, the other one Copperhead. And Copperhead, of course, is not as well known, but I enjoyed the movie Copperhead. Beth, you're in... on it. I liked,
4: yeah, no, I liked it very much because um, it showed the Civil War in the United States was very confusing for people, um, and this shows not it's it's not black and white. You had some people opposed to the war for um, one reason, um, for the war for other reasons, and people in the middle, um, and it. I think it exposed the heartache. Of those maybe caught at home that that didn't take a real strong stand on something, um, it it was a it was hard hard to make up your mind. Some of the the morality of slavery was clear cut, but um, this movie is very good because it 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 shows there were other other issues. So I thought it was wonderful, and the acting was great. So um, I think he he did a wonderful job.
3: Yeah, I'm sorry that film didn't do better. But of course, he's got Gettysburg, and that film did exceptionally well and is still doing very well in the sales of DVDs. The film, I think, everybody who's involved with the Civil War Roundtable, Civil War events or whatever, we all love them. I don't think there's any question about that.
4: Do you think there is a better movie about, um, I'm going to say a war movie? Do you think there's a better picture about a battle in any war
3: well you know that's hard to say because they're not mo- most war movies do not focus on one battle you know so this right. is one of the few films that focuses on on one battle uh, of course it's the most eventful battle in the history of the united states but i can't really think of too many films that focus on one battle like even you know like i'd say one of the greatest uh war movies of all time is they were expendable but that focuses on the old the whole bataan campaign right. or whatever and that right. wasn't focused on you know on on one battle and by the way you know uh, if if you go back Chris, do we have on our podcast the uh, gentleman who wrote the book about the They Were Expendable and the photographs in it?
1: Oh, we do. And you can find that podcast on the AskMikeTheLawyer.com website. That's AskMikeTheLawyer.com. Okay. And we talk
3: about, you know, They Were Expendable, which is perhaps, I think, one of the greatest, if not the greatest war film of all time. It's right up there. You know, and of course, that, a lot of the people involved in that movie were World War II veterans. You know, like Robert Montgomery was a World War II veteran. John Ford was a, a World War II veteran. and and they had firsthand knowledge of what they were filming back then, and they were expendable. and the title says a lot. it's the end of the, it's filmed at the end of the war when we won, but then it goes back to our darkest times when the Japanese were overrunning the Philippines, and we were really at the at the bottom level in, in the war back then, and it focuses on the and the heroes of that time, not the heroes of the victory, the heroes that were there in defeat. So if you haven't seen they were expendable. Strongly recommend you see they were expendable. If you haven't seen take, Copperhead,
4: take a tissue box.
3: Right. If, if you haven't seen Copperhead, Gods and Generals, or Gettysburg, please do so and let let Ron Maxwell when you when you buy the the DVD, let him know you heard from us on Connor's Corner. All right, I'm going to take a short break. Then we'll be talking to
1: Ron Maxwell. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more.
4: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Tuesday, October 23rd at Bocelli Restaurante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and at the 3 West Club. 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan on Thursday, October 25th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
4: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com. That's ConnorsAndSullivan.com.
4: Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to Connors & Sullivan,
1: Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later.
3: We
5: all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org.
1: Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike.
3: Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer.
1: 25 years
3: ago, one of the greatest historical films ever premiered. The name of the film was Gettysburg, the name of the director, Ron Maxwell. Welcome to Connor's Corner, Ron. Hi, Mike.
6: How are you? Good to be with you.
3: The movie Gettysburg has got a lot of lasting power. You know, every friend of mine I know has bought a copy of it, whether it's DVD or back in the old VHS days. Did you ever think this film was going to be that successful when you started?
6: Short answer: No. Uh, you always uh, every film you make, you you you're doing the best you can. You 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 want to reach an audience. Uh, I must say, having said that, that uh, I, uh, we approached it with great seriousness of purpose. We understood from the get-go that we were telling one of America's uh, great stories, uh, that it was a story that was near and dear to the heart of every American, and that we had a great obligation to get it right. So we approached it with a seriousness of, of, of purpose and a, and a humility And I think that helped us uh, because I never lost sight of the fact that the story we were telling was of the generation that was caught up in that horrible conflict in the 1860s and that we had an obligation to tell it as truthfully as possible, to convey as much of the humanity of that generation as possible, and also, as as has been well noted, uh, to do it with a sense of compassion without taking sides, without judging, just presenting it with a great historical fidelity. So I think for all those reasons, we had a shot at it being accepted and a shot at it standing the test of time. Now, the test of time, of course, we're not there yet. That's, that's you know, at least a century uh, because now cinema is older than a century and we can see looking back the films that stand the test of time but to have gone this far a quarter of a century and still have the film uh w- widely in home video release and and and, uh, and also not just the numbers but the the testimony that i hear from individual people from all generations from uh from uh, young children from from uh, graduate students from from Older people the, the the witness that I've heard from people over the last quarter of a century is uh, deeply gratifying.
3: yeah, I don't think there's any question the film stands up very well over time. Of course we'll see in the next hundred years we won't see but we'll find out what history sees. How, when did the project start? How did you first get interested in uh, making a movie about Gettysburg?
6: I first read the novel The Killer Angels in 1978. It was published and, and won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1975. Uh, and, but the moment I read it, it just gripped me in that deep, visceral place that grips <laughs> filmmakers. And I knew I just had to bring this story to the screen. I felt that I was personally called to bring this story to the screen. Uh, and it started what turned out to be a 15-year saga from the time I read the book to the time the movie was in theaters. I uh, tracked down the rights and optioned the rights, met the author, Michael Shara. He and I became great friends. Uh, and then, uh, after about two years of development, seventy-eight to nineteen eighty, I had a screenplay that I then shopped around and proceeded to have every studio and every network slam the door in my face. Uh, one of my producer friends told me, "When ten people tell you you're drunk, lie down." <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, I think one of the one of the essential uh, ingredients of being a filmmaker is to be uh, to never take no for an answer. And to keep keep on keeping on. And, uh, and, and finally, after uh, uh, a long, arduous uh, series of turndowns and and no's, um, uh, Ted Turner and I met. And uh, it was as if he was waiting for me to walk in his office for all those years. Because once he and I met over this project, we immediately discovered that we were kindred spirits. We both shared the passion for it. And uh, then thanks to Ted Turner, it was made.
3: Now, some people may not realize this, but Ted Turner has a small part in your film.
6: Yes. Uh, he wanted to have a little cameo, so we did some research, and we found out that uh, Colonel Patton, a uh, Confederate colonel um, who, in fact, was the great ancestor of the General Patton from World War II, uh, was at Pickett's Charge and was uh, shot at the uh, at the Emmitsburg Road, fatally shot at the Emmitsburg Road. So uh, we we reproduced that uniform with historical accuracy, uh, and, um, and Taylor fit it for Ted. And uh, the night before we were going to shoot that scene, um, we had a dinner. Uh, and. Uh, with some of the actors, and I said, Ted, you know, we're going to shoot you scene tomorrow morning. Now, I can do it two ways. I can keep the camera low to the ground and shoot up against the sky, in which case, you know, we ought to be able to get it done in, you know, 20, 30 minutes with maybe 50, 50 extras moving behind you, reenactors. Or I can, if I lift the camera up off the ground and I lower the lens down and I can see the whole field behind you, like we happen to have 2,500 guys on that day. Working on a picket's charge, we had him for, for many days during that week, and I said we could do it that way, but it's a bigger deal. It's going to take longer to do the 2 your shot. He said, "I want to do it the big way." So, so the next day we were out there with a the whole enchilada, the 2,500 guys, and all the. And when you do that, when you you can see the field, we got to set all those explosive charges. We have to. I mean, smoke. I mean, it's a, a big deal. uh... That's how he wanted to do it, and he he was entitled since he was paying for the whole damn thing. And we, uh, we shot it the first time, and he shot it. If you remember, he shot at the fence. And, uh, and if we did take one, it's a big, massive setup. We did take action, take one. and Just a slight hesitation from when the squibs go off in his chest to when he his hands go up there. So I said, cut. And, of course, I said, we've got to do it again. And I told him, I said, I mean, the microsecond you feel those things burst on your chest, the microsecond your hands, you got you've got you to react to being shot. Uh, So we did it again. Uh, Everything else he did was great, you know, the expression, the movement, the action. And we had a set up again, you know, (laughs) 15, 20 minutes set up, if maybe perhaps longer, to reset its position. Thousands of reenactors back in position, the smoke, the explosions, action. He did it again, and he nailed it the second time. So I said, cut print. And he said, just call me two-take Ted.
3: (laughs) Did he ever act again? Was he ever in another film?
6: Yes, uh, he had a cameo in Gods and Generals. Okay, He played the same general, the same colonel, obviously, before he was shot. <laughs> uh, during the winter camp um, uh, The winter camp between uh, uh, the, the winter of 62-63, when the Confederate Army was camped down on the Rappahannock River, and he's in the scene when they're singing uh, the Bonnie Blue Flag.
3: In retrospect, you put together a great cast. I mean, some of them were well known when you started the film but other people became better known later on like for instance Stephen Lang uh,
6: Stephen Lang and uh, Donald Logue uh, a, a number of of the actors who were who had supporting roles in uh, in Gettysburg went on to do uh, many more films and important films and have really big careers uh, uh yeah no question about it and uh, but I think every single we had this more than hundred and fifty speaking parts they're all listed. at that movie database and whether they just had one word or soliloquies uh, they were just perfectly cast I look back on that film and whatever shortcomings I may personally think uh, the film has or where I didn't maybe achieve what I wanted to achieve uh, I have to say it was absolutely perfectly cast I wouldn't change a single person so, you know, wherever the camera went no matter what scene we had uh, whatever, they were confederates or Yankees. Uh, just, everybody just showed up and nailed it.
3: Well, that can be seen, and that's one of the reasons why I think the film stands up so well. And one of the things I like about your films in general is that you do not take 20th, 21st century characters and put them into the 19th century.
6: Right, it, because it's... it's uh, what's the point of imposing our attitude on any people who lived before? I mean, that, that, that's just like... Uh, uh, you know, uh, excessive virtue signaling, saying the filmmaker saying, "Oh, look how cool I am!" I get it. You know, <laughs> I mean, what a waste of time and money, and uh, really, how boring would that be? Although it's done, as we know. No, the I think when you do a historical film, uh, it's not they who can learn from us. They're they're uh, long dead and gone. They're in heaven. They're not with us, so they're not going to hear us. We, however, can hear them. And that's the challenge of filmmaking in a period of film. We can hear them speak to us, but only if we make the effort again with humility and modesty, without thinking that we somehow are a more enlightened generation and more sophisticated generation. Which, of course, is nonsense. I mean, every generation that ever lived thinks they're the center of the universe. That's normal. But uh, are we better people? No, <laughs> of course not. Human beings are human beings. They, they're, they're, they, the humanity does, doesn't change over, over century and millennia. Uh, style changes, law changes, custom changes, other things change, but not basically the humanity of, of people, whether they're in China, Bangladesh, or North America. So I think uh, it's incumbent on the filmmaker to go where they lived, into their moral universe, without judgment. Because as soon as we go with judgment, we're uh, we're gilding the lily or we or we or we're changing the narrative we're twisting things to fit what we want to hear to go there for the, instance the 1860s uh, again takes a willingness to let go of our preconceptions let go of our attitudes let go of our sense of moral and ethical superiority oh they held slaves i would never hold a slave well of course not who would oh, yeah, you'd have to go to isis to find somebody who'd want to hold somebody in slavery today so we get it of course nobody subscribes to that horrific thing called slavery but in the 19th century some people did <laughs> and it's a harsh reality and we have to understand that and there was also child labor in the, all over the united states all over western europe seven and eight year old kids working in factories losing their fingers etc a lot of horrific things were going on and so we have to go back into into the mindset of that time uh with the humility to understand what made those people tick And those people, just like people now, are motivated by base instincts and exalted uh, inspirations. The whole gamut, the whole gamut of human nature. So when you approach the 1860s like that, then you can begin to understand and embody what's in the title of the novel that the movie is based on. The novel is called The Killer Angels, because that's a quote from Shakespeare, from Hamlet. What a work... of. What a work of man is God, how noble an instinct, how divine in reason, in form and action, how admirable, in action and apprehension, how like an angel, in action how like a god. Uh, So that, yes, we have the killer and the angel instincts in all of us. And as Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, the line between good and evil cuts between every human heart. And so once you accept that and embrace that, then I think you can begin to do a movie on the Civil War without taking sides, without sitting in judgment and understanding that the entire generation of Americans who lived through it, male and female, black and white, blue and gray, north and south, endured a horrible, tragic experience Start there and then tell the story.
3: Ron, we need to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to
7: Ron Maxwell, director of the classic movie Gettysburg. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family make the call now 888-943-2646 or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash f once again call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement
1: frank milia nmls number 62591 all loans provided by Quantic Bank and MLS number 403503.
6: Hi, this is John Patton of Catholic Charities, Brooklyn and Queens, and a former player of the New York Islanders. I'm proud of my years playing hockey with the Islanders during the Cup years, and I'm also very proud of the work carried out every day by Catholic Charities, who is always there for children and youth, adults and seniors, veterans, mentally ill and homeless, with 160 programs and over 3,700 units of affordable housing. For more information, visit ccb. We are committed to changing lives and building communities.
4: How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of grandpa?
1: These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected.
3: I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now.
4: I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors &
1: Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500 or
3: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're continuing our conversation with Ron Maxwell, the director of Gettysburg. Now, getting back to, you know, a, a thoughtful movie, if those of you in the audience haven't seen it, if you get it, is Copperhead. You know, you have two main characters, one is opposed to slavery, but doesn't mind if thousands of people die getting rid of slavery. Another man is a pacifist who would live with slavery and doesn't want to see lives wastefully thrown away. And I, I think it's a, a very interesting study and, and something that brings us back into the, the 19th century mind.
6: Yeah, that film, like uh, the other two films I made said, in the American Civil War, uh, explores uh, other facets uh, there's a French saying called "L'envers du medaille," which is the other side of the medal. There's a shiny side of the medal that's the side we see when soldiers wear it, and but there's a darker side, the side that's never shown to the light. And again, it's this duality of human nature. So, in the North and in the South during the Civil War, there were people who were did not subscribe to what their governments were doing. There were Southerners who who were opposed to secession whether or not they endorsed slavery i know it's very hard for modern man to understand that some people endorse slavery in the nineteenth century it's mind-boggling but some people did uh... and but but even those who did not uh, there were some people who who were opposed to secession uh... those stories haven't really been explored that all that much in in, in cinema same thing in the north it wasn't monolithic everybody didn't say "Oh, we need to keep the southern states in the union or by 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation, oh, we need to free the slaves. No. It was very, very fractured and complex. There was a whole variety of opinion, and some of the opinion is embodied in the main character in the in the novel Copperhead, which was written in 1899 by Harold Frederick, who was a young boy during the Civil War. So he was writing about things he experienced, and up in that part of upper New York State, around Utica, around that western up, up upstate New York, there were communities that that didn't think what why are we doing why are we doing this why are we sending our sons to go die in a slaughter slaughterhouse in shiloh or antietam uh, for what in other words their attitude was to hell with those with alabama and and virginia let let them secede let them have their own country it's not our business and if you and in the in the attitudes of the average person in the 1850s and 60s the sense of the state being your sovereign home was very strong. Uh, we don't have that today. We have it in sports, you know, your local team, your state team, your your state college. But, you know, we think of ourselves as Americans. We don't think of ourselves as Virginians or New Yorkers necessarily. But back in the middle of the 19th century, this there was a dualism. Yes, they thought of themselves as Americans, but they're also a very strong state consciousness. So the, so the characters in in this town in Copperhead, uh, it's a it's a work of fiction, just like The Killer Angels is a work of fiction. But both both movies are meticulously researched, so the fictional characters are put in are put in the real world. And so the the two fathers who are the who are the antagonists in Copperhead, one played by Billy Campbell, and the other played by Angus McFadgen, are diametrically opposed because the Ang- Angus McFadgen character believes in the new war aim. Is the new war, aim. remember, was only after 1862 in the Battle of Antietam that Abraham Lincoln elucidated the Emancipation Proclamation. So we're two years into the war before an official war aim is the freedom of the slaves. Before that, it was only forcing the southern states to go back in the Union. And so uh, the Billy Campbell character says, not my war, not my fight. You can't have my son. But, of course, his son wants to enlist. His son is gung-ho. The other father, played by Angus McFadgen, is all for the war. He sees it as a war of liberation. His son, however, is a pacifist, and he doesn't want to go. So, so the sons are mismatched with the fathers, and that's part of the tension in the film, the, the tension between fathers and sons, in addition to the tension between the two fathers, which ends up dividing the whole community and tearing apart the whole community, because there's some who believe in the war and some who don't, which raises the question of the dissenter. Because the person who dissents against his country going to war is always the subject of severe criticism in any war, in any time, in any country. Whenever the, the country decides we're going to war and you're the guy who says, maybe not. You subject yourself to a lot of peer pressure, and worse.
3: Yeah, because like the Billy Campbell character, he doesn't like Abraham Lincoln, and in today that seems you know practically sacrilegious.
6: Yeah, well, we we've elevated Abraham Lincoln to a kind of a secular sainthood for very understandable reasons. He preserved the union during his uh, presidency, and he uh, emancipated the slaves. So that's not hard to figure out. But, but a- again, putting yourself in the t- context of the time, you know, there were a lot of people who didn't want to go to war. I mean, and, that, and as the war proceeded and the death toll mounted into, into horrific numbers, I mean, now we look back, more than 700,000 KIA. I think, that's mind-boggling. More than 700,000 KIA, I want to say it again. That's not even counting wounded in action, missing in action. Uh, It it was horrific, horrific The death toll. It completely ravaged the the South and some of the border states. Uh, So as as people were living through this and losing their sons and their fathers and their brothers, well, what are we doing this for? What are we trying to accomplish? So there was a lot of doubt. And, and probably, I mean, historians argue about this, but had there not been the dual victories of Vicksburg and Gettysburg in July of 1863 in the following year, which was the election year in 1864 for president, uh, historians argue that um, the peace faction in the north would have prevailed. They would have said, we've got to cut a deal with them. Uh, they would have called the European power in to negotiate a peace deal. Uh, the war would have ended in negotiated settlement ending in two countries where there is now one. Uh, but that's not what happened. Uh, in fact, there were two stunning Union victories, one at Gettysburg and one at Vicksburg, within the week of each other, within almost a day of each other. And, uh, you know, nothing succeeds like success. And so at that point, uh, the average northerner would think, yes, the death toll is high, but we're now we're winning. And, uh, you know, winning excuses many sins. So the war continued to its, to its grinding, horrific finality, with many, many more casualties until the uh, April 1865.
3: Now I understand October 12th, 13th is going to be a celebration. I guess most of the tickets are sold out. The Gettysburg Foundation. What are they doing?
6: Well, the, uh, uh, there's a couple, a few things going on. The one I'm attending is uh, the uh, the official one that's being hosted by the Journey Through Hallowed Ground, which is an organization that's now about 15, 16 years old that that does, that celebrates and protects. Uh, the area, the kind of one of the cradles of American civilization, which is a swath of land anchored in Gettysburg in the north and Monticello, Jefferson's home in the south, and in between you you have Native American history and African American history and colonial history and uh, the, the, the French and Indian War, and the American Revolution, and the Civil War. So it's just it's just a, a rich area for, for people who live here to enjoy and for tourists to visit. And the Journey Through Hallowed Ground's mission is to protect it, uh, to celebrate it, to encourage tourism uh, so that it doesn't get all paved over and turned into a strip mall. So uh, the Journey Through Hallowed Ground is sponsoring the events on Saturday, October 13th, where at uh, 5 o'clock uh, there's uh, uh, an address by Alan Gelzo, the, uh, the head of Civil War Studies at Gettysburg College and a great uh, Civil War historian. Uh, then I'm going to speak for a little while about the making of the movie. Uh, and then the, the film is going to be introduced by Professor uh, James Robertson, another great Civil War historian, retired now, used to be the head of Civil War Studies at Virginia Tech. Then we're going to show the director's cut, which not everybody has seen which is a half an hour longer than the movie that was released. And then at the end of the film, all the cast that's visiting, uh, we expect to be about 12 or 15 actors from the film, will be introduced, and they're going to hang in the lobby afterwards so that people have their albums or their uh, CDs or DVDs or whatever they have, Uh, the cast will, and I will be there to sign them and and have a meet and greet. So it'll be a really fun evening on, on Saturday, October 13th at the Majestic Theater in Gettysburg, and tickets are available. There's 800 seats, and I think they're about half sold now. They're $25 each, and they can be purchased online at Majestic Theater Gettysburg.
3: Okay, well, those I have the tickets for, and, and I've got some tickets for the dinner on the 12th, but some of my friends were looking for tickets on the 12th. We'll see what happens. Getting back to the the 21st century, Chris, my producer, is telling me that you're involved in, in uh, lobbying as far as intellectual property is concerned. I think that's an issue that's overlooked right now. Can you explain it to the audience?
6: Yeah, I mean, since, uh, I forget what century it was, but, but a few centuries ago, um, in English common law... Uh, they evolved a term called copyright and 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 that it it came about so that the creative work of writers, whether they were journalists or novelists or playwrights, whatever they were writing, whatever they were creating, could be protected by law because it has a value, otherwise uh everybody would steal it or reproduce it and And the creators would, uh, you know, they'd have to go into another line of work. They would be able to survive. So uh, we've now had lived with copyright for a few centuries. It was incorporated into U.S. law ages ago. had some modifications, like how long is the copyright? Is it 75 years? Is it 100 years? These debates go on. And everything was fine until the Internet age. But what the Internet... Facilitated among all the uh, all the wonderful things it facilitated, who would argue against that? It's it's changed our lives in many ways, which are quite improved, no doubt about it. Our access to information, etc. But the downside is it's made it much easier to steal what people do creatively, whether it's music, whether it's uh, writing, whether it's. Uh, uh whatever whatever people whatever creative work is so so i p which is the initials for intellectual property, has now become a big issue because now this theft that's that the internet has enabled not that the internet is stealing it it enables the stealing makes it easy to steal it is now a worldwide phenomenon, and it 's sucking tens of billions of dollars out of our economy, tens of billions out of the U.S. economy. So when we talk about the balance of trade, this is working against us. Uh, the other thing, I mean, that, that, that's just numbers. But on the ground, it's putting people that I spend my lives with in harm's way. That's filmmakers. You know, I mean, we, we, we hear about the handful of filmmakers that are making mucho bucks. God bless them. But that's not the industry. The industry are mostly people who get a paycheck on Friday, just like any other industry. And these people are getting hurt. Because if you, if you make a movie and it's stolen and, and the investors don't get their money back or, they, or their profits get whittled down to next to nothing, they're not going to invest in movies anymore. They're going to go somewhere else. And if they don't invest in movies, the movies don't get made. The cameramen, the electricians, the hair and makeup people, the grips, the drivers, the electricians, nobody works. So this is a great industry. It's a great American industry. It's, it's in fact, one of our biggest exports. It exports our culture, it exports our product, it exports what we make creatively. And this is is now at risk because of this massive theft that's being enabled principally by the policies at Google, by policies at Facebook, all the big platforms. They don't want to take any measures to seriously crack down on this. So a few months ago, the the government passed a measure that forces them to crack down on on child trafficking on sex trafficking. They wouldn't even do that voluntarily. It's unbelievable. It took an act of Congress to compel them to crack down on on human smuggling. And so, of course, they don't want to do anything about, about protecting copyright, because they, they don't want to do anything that interferes with what they call, you know, the Internet's going to be free, the Internet's not going to be free. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, it, 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 that's It's not free. <laughs> Because it's, what it is, with the real, what they're really saying is the internet should be the law of the jungle. We don't have the law of the jungle in any other part of our lives. You can't go onto a car lot and just steal a car. <laughs> what is that? It's not freedom. That's chaos. And so we have to impose some law and order on the internet to protect intellectual property. Uh, and and, and it has nothing to do with the infringement on freedom. I, I'm an artist. I'm a writer. I'm a filmmaker. I defend freedom. I defend freedom of speech. I never want to see freedom of speech impinged on in any way. But what what these giant companies are doing, they're they're in fact, they're, they're destroying and repressing free speech by shutting down filmmakers and writers and artists who essentially go out of business and have to then drive taxi cabs or Ubers or wait on tables. Nothing against people who do that. Hard work is always noble, no matter what it is. But but people get forced into into jobs that they otherwise wouldn't do because they can't make a living out of what they should be doing.
3: Yeah, one of my pet peeves is when people buy bootleg copies of films. You're stealing money from the from the filmmakers, from the artists, from the actors. Totally.
6: And and I've I've actually you know people said, well, Ron, wh- wh- why should I spend twelve dollars for a video when I can get it for free? I said. I said uh, it, it, how come your whole logic and your whole sense of ethics and morality disappears when it comes to, like, movies and music? I mean, you, you wouldn't go into a Seven Eleven and steal chewing gum off the stand. I mean, it, it is amazing to me how people have this kind of dual dual system that they've worked out in their heads because it's so easy to sit at home, hit, hit a button, and just steal something. But it is stealing. Let, let's call it what it is. And, they, and, and then the next level of justification or rationalization is that, well, we're stealing from big mega companies. Who cares? For the, uh, no. Yeah, you may think you're stealing from the big mega company, but, uh, but you're stealing from every single creative person and every single person who works on those movies. You're stealing from the little guy. That's, that's, that's the reality. Because the big, big players at the top, no matter how much theft goes on, no matter what happens, they're going to line their pockets, they're going to protect themselves. That's the way the system is built. So who gets hurt? As usual, the little guy. So we we need to get real about this, which is why I go and help my, my friends on the Hill to lobby Congress and say, we need to get some rules of the road here, we need to protect intellectual property, or we're going to kill the goose that lays the golden egg.
3: I'm with you. Wish you the best. Ron Maxwell, thank you for bringing history to life in, in Copperhead, Gods and Generals, and especially Gettysburg. And good luck. You know, I, I totally agree with you. You shouldn't be stealing. You, no matter who you're stealing from, you shouldn't be stealing. And and that's what we're dealing with right now.
6: That's right. And no, huge problem. Uh, and I think we've got to we, – and here's another thing I want to say on this, Mike. Uh, th- these companies are out of control. I mean, you know, 100 years ago we were facing uh, monopolies – and the U.S. government had to had to had to you know take charge of things. And and I'm and look, I'm not a default let the government solve the problem kind of guy. I, I'm for free enterprise, and for laissez-faire to the extent possible. I know I'm sounding like the antithesis of that, but but sometimes only the government can handle this stuff. And these companies are now so big, these trillion-dollar companies, and they what? They're run by two or three or four guys. I mean this is a massive amount of power in the hands of a small small group of people unelected unaccountable so the, so we're at a tipping point here the you know, US government has got to has got to rein these people in and get some control on Google Facebook Twitter these big internet companies that are all so mostly clustered in Silicon Valley and say hey I'm sorry uh the American sovereignty is important. American liberty is important. We can't let all this power be sucked into one place with a handful of guys, unelected and unaccountable. IP is just one manifestation of the problem—the way creative people are getting ripped off. But it's seeping into all sorts of areas. So uh, I'm want to encourage this Congress to take a good look. This is bipartisan. This is not a Democrat, a Republican, left-right issue. This is an American issue uh, that we 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 got to watch out because sometimes monopolies. Are antithetical to our liberty.
3: Well said. Ron Maxwell, thank you for being on Connor's Corner.
1: You bet. My pleasure. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come
3: to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy.
0: I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a a burden to me.
4: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going.
6: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which which probably means I I never really got
7: it to begin with.
0: You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
7: We are enslaved to
0: power, or to greed, or to wealth, or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God
4: and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person, I love it.
2: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
0: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you.
3: If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, We invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today.
6: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the U.N. published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, "...everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person." And it also states, "...everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law." Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
1: Welcome back to
3: Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth.
4: We're back, everybody. Okay,
3: so Ron Maxwell, interesting interview. And of course, I love the movie Gettysburg, so I could talk all day about that movie, Gettysburg. And, and I, I Gods and Generals, I liked. It's a Civil War movie. I liked it. But I, I like Copperhead a little bit more, and I think that was a very interesting film, and it really got short shrift with the critics and the audiences, you know, when it came out. I, I, I really did like that movie. But we look forward to seeing Ron Maxwell in Gettysburg on October 13th. Again, there's still tickets available to Majestic Theater to see the director's cut of Gettysburg. According to Ron, there are going to be about 13 actors from the movie there. So I think we may know one or two of them, Beth, right?
4: Oh, sure. Oh, I don't think it'll be a great night. Just a lot of fun. Everybody, I mean, that movie is beloved by the actors. And the Gettysburg, of course, is so much fun anyway, just roaming around Gettysburg. So absolutely, I don't see how I, I don't see how you could not have fun,
3: right? And the Majestic Theater is about a block away from the town square at Gettysburg, so it's right in the middle of downtown Gettysburg, about a block away. You can't miss it if you're in the area. Getting back to estate planning, which is what we're in business for, we're going to have seminars at, uh, in October. On October twenty third, we're going to be in Staten Island at Bocelli's Restaurant. First seminar is going to be at eleven. AM, second one at 3 PM, third one at 7 PM. What do we talk about? We talk about estate planning and elder law. We talk about saving your house from nursing home bills. We talk about voiding probate. We're talking about saving on taxes. We're talking about making it easy for your children after you're gone. So if if you live in Staten Island on Tuesday, October 23rd, come to see us at Pacelli's Restaurant at 1250 Highland Boulevard, which is in the same complex as our office. If you live in Manhattan or you'd rather come to Manhattan, on Thursday, October 25th, we're going to be at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. That's right near St. Patrick's Cathedral off 5th Avenue. We're going to do our first seminar at 11 o'clock in the morning, our second seminar at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's going to be at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. So if you're interested about estate planning, come in. The time to plan is now. I mean, yes, you got to be ready to do it. By the way, we have moved our Manhattan office recently to 880 3rd Avenue. I'm sorry, 880 3rd Avenue. So if you have a scheduled appointment with us, just make sure you're going to the right place. I'd hate to see you in the wrong place because we won't get a lot accomplished. Again... Thank you for listening to Ask a Lawyer. We'll be here, same time, place, next week.
4: Bye bye, everybody.
3: David Kincaid telling us to say good night.
4: We are gathered here on Hallowed
1: Ground, the
4: voices raised, heads
1: bowed down. We're gathered here on Hallowed Ground to sing this song away. We are gathered here on Hallowed Ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on Hallowed Ground to sing this song away. Ask the lawyer friends and listeners. You can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and
4: more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Tuesday, October 23rd at Bocelli Restaurante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan on Thursday, October 25th at 11 7 a.m. and 3 p.m.
4: Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718 238 6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718 238 6500 or go to ConnorsandSullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later a preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.